Hello, and welcome back to another annual meeting podcast. Today, we have the pleasure of being joined by Drs. Windemute and Cunningham, two groundbreaking researchers in the area of firearm research and who will be delivering the keynote session Wednesday at 9.30 a.m. here at SAM 19. Interviewing them today will be Casey Glass, Assistant Professor of Emergency Medicine at Wake Forest and member of the Social Media Committee. In our conversation today, we'll go over some of the highlights of firearm research in the modern era and talk a little bit about uh, perhaps some ways to bring that research to the bedside in the daily practice of emergency medicine. First up, we're going to be speaking with Dr. Wintemute. He is the founding director of the Violence Prevention Research Program and holds the Baker Terrett Chair in Violence Prevention at the University of California, Davis. Let's go ahead and get right into the conversation. Dr. Wintemute, thanks for being with us today. If you wouldn't mind sharing, what attracted you to this particular field of public health research? couple things. Uh, when I was just in practice before entering academics, I was intrigued by injury prevention. Generally, um, took a leave from absence from my job decades ago, worked in Cambodia for five months, right after Pol Pot's time, and oh. became utterly convinced of the power of violence and conflict to, to shape the destiny of entire societies and actually changed my career, decided I'm heading into academics. I wanted to do policy, thought I was going to do international health. And in the course of a year in public health school, switched horses and decided to work on firearm violence. And we can go into why I switched if, if you'd like. Mm -hmm. But the, the one of the realizations that has kept me at it and that I stress in conversations with other clinicians is the knowledge that the, the great majority, about 75% of people who die from gunshot wounds die at the shooting scene. It doesn't matter how good and fast the paramedics are. It doesn't matter how good we are, how good the trauma docs are. These people are just dead. So if we want to make the greatest possible inroads into preventing people from dying from firearm violence, we have to prevent them from being shot in the first place. And that's basically the story of my last 35 years of work. That's really interesting and something I, I guess that I hadn't really considered. I mean, certainly we all see uh, victims of firearm violence through the ED. And we know, I think, at a certain intellectual level that there's much more of that happening that never makes it to the emergency department. But, the, you know, truly the, the ratio of three patients uh, out of hospital to every one that makes it to the hospital in terms of uh, firearm deaths is a little bit different than probably the way most clinicians in the emergency department think about that. Exactly. It, I think it, it's one of a bunch of areas, but this is the one we're talking about, where by one path or another, clinicians come to realize that they can do as much or more, sometimes for individual patients, by working at the community and policy level than they can by providing patient care. And so as we're talking about kind of this aspect of firearms violence, when we're talking about the plenary you're going to deliver at SAEM, uh, what would be the overarching theme or the main point that you hope the audience will take home from that? That Two things, I think. Uh, there are flip sides of the same coin. One is this is the health problem, a health problem. Um, and the other is it's your problem. It's something you can do something about. So in the, the 15, one, five minutes that, that I have, because this is a split talk, mm -hmm. um, I'm going to be making three points, just a very little bit about the epidemiology of the problem, emphasizing suicide, because if you look at 
number of deaths and not rates. Firearm violence is actually an old white guy problem, which people don't stop to think about. I will very briefly touch on some specific things that clinicians can do and refer them to a website we have that is very deep and informative. And then I'm going to hit briefly three of the areas of policy that are very much under discussion in many states and in Congress this year. So uh, I think maybe it'd be fun to just explore those things a little bit one at a time. Um, The first one, just we already touched a little bit up on the epidemiology and kind of thinking through the numbers around firearm violence, what what is one misconception that you think that probably is prevalent in the emergency medicine community? Well, one, and I think we share this with others, in part because of the blinders we have on, we see who comes through the door. Um, We tend to think of firearm violence as a crime problem. We think of assault and homicide, but most firearm deaths are suicides. And as you and I mentioned a moment ago, the demographics are completely different. Homicide um, disproportionately affects young men, and in particular, young men of color. Suicide disproportionately affects older white non-Hispanic men. This is a much broader problem than it's commonly thought to be. Certainly, I have experienced what you're talking about there as far as the patients that we see in the emergency department, and uh, I recognize that the older victims of firearm violence are probably not patients that we readily identify with when we're working shifts in the emergency department. Well, the reason we don't identify them is we don't see them. They die at the scene. We were starting to talk a little bit about... So you were, we were talking a little bit earlier about uh, a website that uh, you're going to refer to that may provide some tools for clinicians uh, in terms of uh, starting to make an impact on firearm violence for their own patients. I know as a clinician, a lot of times I feel somewhat uh, ineffective. I'm not empowered to mm-hmm. intervene in this aspect mm-hmm. of pu- public health. I know for probably a lot of my colleagues, it just seems like a problem that's, that's really big. Uh, What are a couple of tools that clinicians can use kind of on a day-to-day shift uh, environment to start to move the needle on this sort of a problem? Within the clinical arena, first, let's remember, we we intervene with a lot of other really big problems. We intervene, um, preventively speaking, with motor vehicle crashes and alcohol and cancer and heart disease. So, So the scale of the problem isn't a deterrent. We're still doing it if we're in the clinical arena, one person at a time. So in a nutshell, um, the the thinking is when you're seeing a patient, um, if it's relevant to the reason that they're there, do a little bit of risk assessment. Um, Does this person have risk factors for firearm violence? Are those risk factors, in fact, the reason you're seeing them? Or, Or maybe you're even seeing them because they've been shot. When it's relevant, um, if there's time, because there isn't, it, it's not always the case that there is time, yeah. bring it up. So, so I, I will sometimes, after establishing the relevance with the patient, cards face up, sure. I, will, I will simply ask, so are there any firearms in and around your home? Or I might even just say, so tell me about the guns you have. Um, it, one of the myths about this is that patients aren't interested. And in fact, there, there's... There are several studies out there. We're about to publish another one establishing that if this conversation is seen by the patient as relevant to the patient's health or the health of people they care about, their kids or grandkids, they are entirely willing to have the conversation. And they see physicians as credible as long as the physician 
knows what she or he is talking about. And you know, you mentioned not not feeling effective as a barrier. We we very often hear, I don't know enough about this problem. Well, fair enough. Um, do some homework, and the website provides resources for the homework. One does not have to be a firearm aficionado, a knowledgeable about firearms, a user of firearms, to have this conversation any more than one needs to be a smoker to have a conversation about tobacco. We have to know the benefits and the risks, but that's the kind of stuff we take on as an obligation as part of being good physicians. Yeah, I I, I uh, take the challenge there because I can imagine I'm thinking through as you're describing that about the statistics that I know about chest pain and the conversation that would be like with a patient. Uh, and it does seem a little bit unfair not to have a command of information that would allow a similar conversation with patients who are at risk for firearm-related violence. Right. And as recently as a year ago, um, that information was hard to come by, at least come by in a, in a single place. And th- this effort that you and I have been talking about is something that a bunch of people had talked about. I launched something sort of formal right after the uh, mass shooting in Las Vegas, and it mm-hmm. has grown since. So now... At, at UC Davis has something called the What You Can Do Initiative. Mm-hmm. Um, the what you the you and what you can do is physicians and other health professionals. There's a website. There are articles at the Annals of Internal Medicine and elsewhere. There are, there are more coming. There are handouts. There are all sorts of links to resources. It, it is a kind of a one-stop shop for people who would like to double down on their statement that, yes, this is my lane and do something about it. So that's a great challenge for the audience that's listening. It's the, this resource is there, and we'll have the link to that, I'm sure, in the show notes. And so uh, if you find yourself in the same position as I find myself, uh, where perhaps I just don't feel like I have as much command of the the background information as we would need to make this a great conversation with the patient at the bedside, please go check that out and uh, make yourself ready for that conversation. And uh, when you kind of discuss a little bit the putting the spotlight on this problem. It's funny you you should ask. For about a year, um, the title of my standard talk is includes the phrase it's different this time. Um, there's it's become clearer in in hindsight that there was a turning point in 2012. Um, people think of Sandy Hook, which happened at the end of the year, but there was Aurora, Colorado. There were other mass shootings um, that year. And what has happened since and is not only continuing to happen, but is increasing, the, the rate of progress is increasing, is people are saying one at a time and, and sometimes collectively, we've had enough. Um, we're, we are off the sidelines. We're, we are going to do something about it. Uh, there's Boy, is there lots still to do. There's nowhere near enough research funding. There's no part of this problem about which we know enough to com- to proceed with complete confidence. But we do know enough in some areas to work on translating knowledge into policy. Um, and every day, new people are joining this effort. So I'm, I, I have been doing this work since 1982, and I am more optimistic now than I have been at any time in that entire period. Well, I think that's really encouraging to hear, because um, I know uh, as someone, of course, like all of our colleagues who are listening to this, who, who are on the front lines dealing with these patients, um, sometimes it really can feel overwhelming and like, uh, you know, we're not making a lot of progress uh, but it's encouraging to hear 
that the perhaps the tide is really starting to turn in terms of mobilizing uh, our colleagues and, and the general population to uh, try to reduce this problem. You mentioned a little bit about research funding, and that has historically been a problem. Is that you know looking up, or uh, is the future of especially federal research funding for this still kind of cloudy? Federal funding still cloudy, um, but getting better. I think the the clouds are starting to clear. <laughs> That's good. Um, one one hopes. I, this this year, um, actually, there's a hearing today. Uh, the House is hearing legislation that would provide pretty substantial, at least, startup research funding to NIH, to CDC, I believe, to the National Science Foundation. Um, one bill would even establish a federal center under NSF, if I recall. Um, that legislation might clear the House. I think it will die in the Senate, um, but, but for years, such bills didn't even get a hearing in the House, let alone get through sure. it, so yeah. it's moving. But the other piece of this is, among among the entities stepping forward and saying we've had enough we're on on the sidelines beyond physicians there are foundations private foundations who've said we are in this game we've never done it before we've been worried about the risk but we we want to give money um there are states california stepped up and created the the first publicly funded firearm violence research center is here. I, I direct it. New Jersey has followed suit, and I think there are as many as half a dozen other states now considering it. A few years ago, nobody. If I talked like this, people would would think I was joking. And and now the the tone is well. How can we improve on what he just said? Yeah, and so uh, I mean, it's just very encouraging to hear that in the absence of federal funding, private funding is picking up. And so it sounds like, at least my understanding of what you're telling me there, is that the pace of you know private organizations starting to fund these things is really accelerating as well. Yes, I, I'll just give you one example. There's a, a family foundation, the Arnold Foundation, which had had, to my knowledge, nothing whatsoever um, to do with this issue, pledged $20 million right up front um, and entered into an agreement with Rand Corporation, which established, in essence, an institute. It's called the National Collaborative on Gun Violence Research that issued an initial call for um, letters of intent for research proposals um, late last year. They got more than 250 research proposals to give, I'm sorry, letters of intent to give you a sense of the pent-up sure. demand. And they have, they're now looking at 45 or 50 full-fledged um, research proposals they're going to fund between 10 and 20 of them that effort is funded by just one foundation and arnold in addition to committing 20 million of its own money has pledged to try and raise 30 million more from other private donors so i think society is saying if our leaders won't lead we will um so Garen, as we look at SAM, uh, we're about to have the scientific meeting. Uh, probably some of our audience will be listening just after that. 
kind of the beautiful of our society is that it's a big garden where, uh, in addition to uh, showing off the fruits of labor of uh, so many talented uh, scholars such as yourself, uh, we also kind of grow the next generation of uh, clinician scientists uh, in the form of our medical students and residents. So for trainees who are starting to look at this area of research, what are some uh, advice you might give or some places that they might start to uh, dive in, maybe projects that don't require you know, large grant funding or uh, other places where um, gun violence researchers gather to discuss their work? Sure. So in terms of doing research that doesn't require substantial funding, there are a number of administrative databases available that look at mortality and morbidity and crime. For the last five years, a number of people have been making use of those databases for precisely the reason that it's work that can be done with no money. Sure. And there's still plenty of interesting questions that can be answered. The other thing that that the students and residents can do as as entry-level clinicians is hit that website and start themselves incorporating the knowledge that they will need to engage with this issue as clinicians. Um, I still practice medicine. I, sure. I, I do research on, during the week. I do my shifts on the weekends and, and engage with this problem in, in both those professional capacities. And that's what I encourage the young young emergency medicine physicians and students to do is don't make a choice. As a clinician and as a researcher, make this one of the topics that you care about. Very good. Well, Dr. Wintermute, thank you so much for talking with us. And uh, I know it's been a great conversation for me. You've been very educational. And uh, I hope that you have a great plenary talk at SAM and look forward to seeing you there. Well, thanks much. Likewise, it's been a pleasure. We're also speaking today with Dr. Rebecca Cunningham. Dr. Cunningham is the director of the CDC-funded University of Michigan Injury Prevention Center, Associate Vice President for Health Sciences Research for the University of Michigan's Office of Research, Professor for the University of Michigan's Department of Emergency Medicine, and Professor in Health Behavior and Health Education for the University of Michigan School of Public Health. Dr. Cunningham, thank you also for being with us today. Dr. Cunningham, how did you come to be involved in this area of public health research? Yeah, so I got interested in violence prevention and public health research. I think uh, as a practicing emergency physician standing in the trauma bay day in and day out and um, seeing and running trauma codes and uh, getting a little frustrated and tired of the constant flow of people that were entering into the trauma bay and particularly the kids and young adults that I was seeing. And while the trauma protocols become you know pretty simple to work through as one gets more experience, it seemed that uh, there was incredible opportunity that we were missing uh, on a larger public health measure um, to work upstream, that the kids and the young adults that, that we were seeing by the time we see them in the trauma bay, especially with a firearm injury and penetrating trauma, you know, there's, there's, there's things that we can do at that point that can improve their outcomes, but really the biggest thing that we could do to improve their outcome would have been to prevent this injury, which is overwhelmingly preventable in the first place. And, and that really motivated me. Yeah. And I, I was talking uh, earlier with your colleague who will also be presenting next Wednesday. And uh, we were both just, uh, you know, discussing that sensation that you get the feeling you get standing in the trauma bay with these injured children or injured adults and, and just a, a feeling of helplessness to really change the situation around their injury. That may not be the right way to feel. It sounds like there are things that practicing clinicians can probably do to have more of an impact 
that just aren't trauma care in the trauma bay. Yeah, I think that's right. So there's two things. I mean, one of the first things that I started doing early in my career and in my research focus was with those youth who did come in through the trauma bay and even those who didn't come in through the trauma bay but were living in high-risk neighborhoods is what could we do to make sure they either didn't come back or didn't come back for a violent injury or a violence-related injury. So we had them there in the emergency department often for eight, 10 hours, sometimes admitted. And um, if that's the opportunity we have with them, then how could we best capitalize on that opportunity? And so that was my first ray of hope is really understanding the emergency department is an opportunity for intervention. Uh, And when you realize that, especially among high school kids or among um, youth in minority communities, that no matter what you see, the child or the young adults uh, therefore, up through age 24 in the emergency department, whether you're taking care of their asthma that day or their subbed toe or their belly pain, the thing that they're going to die from before they're age 24, their number one cause is, is violence and firearm violence. And so we have an opportunity while they're within our care to try to change that potential course or bad outcome uh, that they're at very high risk for. We spend a lot of our time learning chest pain protocols and risk stratifying people for um, you know how high their risk is for having an MI after they leave the ER. And I realized early on that that wasn't consistent with the way we were taking care of these kids, that we weren't spending any time risk stratifying them for who was likely to have a firearm uh, injury or bad outcome, even though it was the largest thing that they would die from over the next several years. I know when I think about the causes of death in children and young people, I have to admit that violence and firearm injury are not the first things that I think of. And I suspect that I'm not alone in that. Has it been your experience that most clinicians maybe just have not stepped back to think about this in, in kind of a more objective fashion? Yeah, I think that the data has been um, purposely muddled in some ways over the past um, few decades with sort of the silencing of, of research in this area. Uh, and so I think some of those blatant facts have just not been very well described. So um uh, firearm injury and death is the leading cause of death among kids 1 through 19 and up through 24. Um, I think a lot of our colleagues don't know that. Um, if, and there's a couple of reasons behind that. If you work in an urban center, then you're likely to see a lot of firearm injury, some of which is then non-fatal and that we take care of and we treat and treat. Um, if you work in a more rural area, it's actually um, a leading cause of death in rural America as well. Um, but it's more likely that those are related to suicide. Uh, and in those cases, since suicide by firearm attempts are 95% fatal, um, those kids don't make it to RER, and so it's almost an invisible disease in some ways. They don't wind up being seen by the hospital system overall. They go directly to the morgue. Yeah, that is really sobering to think about the scope of this and how much of it, the greatest impacts probably never come through the doors of the emergency department. Yeah, and that's our opportunity. So one, for the for the people who are coming through our emergency department, what can we do to make sure that they don't wind up a victim of firearm violence, either by suicide or by intentional um, means, um, by interpersonal violence? And then you know, what is our responsibility as as emergency physicians to this second leading cause of death? We spend a lot of time learning about cancer um, research. Uh, we spend a lot of time thinking about motor vehicle crash and even motor vehicle crash prevention. We think of those as our job, um, but how we can help people not wind up in the ER for gunshot injury. 
hasn't been as much on our radar as I think it should be, and this should, is part of the larger public health conversation. Yes, and you mentioned a little while ago about how the message about firearms research and the history of firearms research maybe is cloudier than it should be. What what should clinicians know about the history of firearms research and where firearms violence research needs to go in the future as we move into the next decade? Sure. So firearm research was pretty much shut down entirely by the federal government in the late 1990s. Um, and during the time that I was a young attending physician, uh, I was mentored and told that I couldn't study this and have a career in it. There was no funding in it. Um, it was difficult to string together any dollars to look at the issue at all. Uh, difficult to find journals that would publish anything in it. Um, and people in uh, many rooms across the country in public health societies and some of our own professional societies at the time did not want the word firearm mentioned in, in any of our groups. It was seen as, seen as too political and too third rail and something that really we just needed to stay away from. And um, that's changed a lot over the past five, six years and really tremendously, I would say, over the past two years. And uh, I think that that's in terms of uh, emergency medicine and physicians need to know that we're we're on the front line of this. You know, us and uh, the trauma surgery folks are some of the folks that are the most engaged with this population of people that are victims of firearm violence. And if not us, then who? We have a responsibility to be be continuing to call this to the attention of the House of Medicine. Uh, and to be addressing it head on. Yeah, and I take your point because I'm a relatively young attending. And uh, even in my training, I remember hearing that, you know, firearms research was just not a thing that you could do. There was no money for that. You know, it was too political to even get into. And it's wonderful that um, physicians like yourself have persisted and carried on despite the barriers that have been in place. And I wonder, do you feel like there's something especially different in the last five to six years, either the attention to this that social media can bring or the kinds of events that we've seen lately? What do you think really has changed? Yeah, I mean, I think a few things have changed. So, you know, after Newtown, there was the beginning of a shift in, in, in the country with sort of this Although there had been shootings in schools before, that really raised the level to a national attention that hadn't yet been on it. Uh, and in communities that hadn't necessarily always felt victimized excessively by firearm violence, started increasing the national conversation ar around it. Um, with the many subsequent school mass shootings that have gone on over that time, I think uh, as well as we see shootings in yoga studios and shootings in churches and places of worship, I think the country and our, our citizens are starting to realize that, that this is a problem for all of us and all of our communities and all of our kids are at risk and all of our families are at risk and this is something that we need to pay more attention to. And so I think that started a lot of the conversation. You know, for myself and my team, uh, in 2014, um, we decided to be bold and write up the an NIH grant that has turned into the largest single investment that NIH has made ever, but certainly over the last 25 years, to focus on firearm violence. Because what we what we saw and what we knew by looking at the numbers that I just talked with you uh, a little mm -hmm. while ago about are, uh, I mean, can we really ignore that the second leading cause of death is firearms? I mean, mm -hmm. how do we how do we turn away from that? Should should we really be turning away from that? It's, is it too political? And you know, we think no, it's it's not too political. And in fact, it's not political at all. You have a lot of a lot of children dying, and we we need to think about what the solutions are for that that aren't political, but that help um, our kids not have this risk factor so that they can grow to be adults and productive members of our society. Thinking about myself, like trying to be more active in this space in my own practice, 
Uh, a lot of times uh, I was discussing with uh, Dr. Wintermute earlier that sometimes we just don't feel like we have a command of the data when we go to have those conversations with the parents or uh, young people about firearm safety. Sometimes we just feel ill-equipped to do that. Uh, in terms of daily practice, just getting in there with patients, trying to move the needle on this, what, what do you think is the best advice uh, as people go to talk to their patients about firearms? Yeah, I mean, I think the first advice to kind of back up even for you sure. out of the patient's yeah. day is just to um, is to sort of take back the F word. We're allowed to say the word firearms. We're allowed to research and talk about firearms and firearm injury the same way we talk about motor vehicle crash injury and knife injury um, and burn injury. And this is part of our practice. And we, we you know, there's no reason that we can't own that F firearm word and sure. talk about it in a non-political way. Um, and start uh, asking good questions about it the same way we do about anything else in our practice, about why we do things and how we do things and how we can help our patients be better uh, and do better. And those questions will lead to a lot of the answers that will happen in the next generation after this. Um, in terms of how to talk to patients about it, um, I think uh, a couple things. One, we have a great resource on our site, which is childfireharminjury.org, which is our facts uh, website. It has educational videos. Uh, that, that demonstrate uh, in the C1, do one, D1, do one, teach one, C1, do one, teach one model, yeah. you know, what does it look like to be counseling families um, around uh, owning a firearm? And I think, you know, the most important thing um, in any conversation, any difficult conversation we have with patients is just non-judgment. Um, you know, I have no judgment about whether my patients own a firearm or not in the same way that I don't, I, I um, have no judgment on whether they have a pool in their backyard. I know that having a pool in their backyard might be risky for their kids. So we have to have a conversation about whether that pool has safety rails around it and how they're helping their kids not drown. Sure. Um, So families own firearms. We know about a third of the families in the country own firearms. And about 60% of those own more than one. Uh, And it's an important part of uh, of their family life and culture and habits. And we need to respect that uh, while also recognizing that we can do better in keeping uh, kids and families safer. Uh, and so uh, recognizing that and and having no judgment about it uh, is, I think, the first thing that people who are squeamish about firearms can do. I think one of the other things they can do, and we have a great video on our website about this, is you know, you, you need to be, we need to educate ourselves as physicians about firearms the same way you can't counsel a family about how to stay safe in a pool if you haven't seen a pool sure. or how to counsel a family about how to wear a seatbelt or do, or do a child safety seat if you've never seen one. Mm-hmm. Um, so being familiar with what the parts of a gun are and how you, what a cable lock is and what safety mechanisms are on it is a really important part of getting comfortable with having conversations with family. And then I think recognizing that, um, uh, all families want their kids and, um, you know, our group is focused on kids, but, you know, there are older adults as well who are at risk for suicide to be safe around firearms and helping families have conversations about um, how we can identify uh, families and teens that are uh, having a particularly difficult time, whether that's be because of depression or because they're involved in partner violence or because they have young children in the house, how we can help firearms that they have be more safely secured uh, and away from those that are most vulnerable. Well, that's great advice, Dr. Cunningham, and I, I thank you. I know I'm going to try to implement a lot of those things and uh, definitely, uh, it's great to hear about your website. The sort of being able to see someone do the counseling, I know at least for me in the way that I 
uh, learn will be a great thing to be able to watch. And as we talk about kind of the implications in daily practice for the kinds of knowledge we're getting from firearms research, uh, you know, there's a lot of um, myths or hearsay or just bad information, even in the EM community around firearms, both firearms injury, firearms uh, prevention, injury prevention, counseling, those sorts of things. Uh, what would you say is maybe the the most uh, unhelpful myth that persists in the EM community when it comes to firearms violence research? Yeah, I think it's really important to understand that you know firearm injury and violence in general is a preventable public health problem, and this isn't something that's too complicated to fix or too political to fix. Uh, it's not more complicated than you know immune system disorders or or finding cures to cancer. These are these are fixable public health problems if we apply our um, apply good injury prevention science to it. We've decreased car crash deaths just over the course of my career, actually. The amount of children, the rate of children dying in cars has dropped in half. Um, and I hope over the course of your career, the rate of firearm injury among children will drop in half. And I think that that's a completely realistic goal to have. So I think it's a wide open field. Um, we're, we're able to do this kind of research right now. We're publishing, um, you know, tons of journal articles on this. And uh, there's no ban on, on firearm research. Uh, there's increasingly great uh, sources of funding. Um, you know, even this week, there's a bill for $50 million mm -hmm. in, that passed through the House that we hope will go through the Senate. Um, this is a, an increasingly open field for young researchers who want to focus on decreasing uh, a, a leading cause of death among the patients that we're seeing uh, every day in the ER. So I think that's a really important myth to get rid of. Mm -hmm. um, there's also increasing uh, foundation funding. The Arnold Foundation mm -hmm. just has put $10 million a year towards this. States are starting to fund this. So, um, you know, I would wildly encourage emergency medicine researchers who want a really interesting career with a lot of um, very low-hanging fruit questions that have not sure. been answered because yeah. there hasn't been anybody focusing on it. This is a great place to, to focus a, a career on and to make a huge impactful difference over, um, over the next uh, 20 years. All right. Well, after this, I'm going to go down to the store and print 100 uh, Own the F-Word t-shirts, and I'll have them at <laughs> SAM to pass out. So if people want to own the F-Word, uh, I'll, I'll try to have some t-shirts there for that. Take it back. Yeah, I know, really. Yeah, I think we're making yeah. some progress here. It certainly sounds like we are, thanks to efforts by great clinicians like yourself. And so, Dr. Cunningham, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. And listeners, if you can, catch the plenary next week at SEM in Las Vegas on Wednesday. Uh, and for those of you who are missing it, uh, please check out uh, the archive or the live stream. And uh, I'm sure that Dr. Cunningham will have more great words to share with us at the meeting. So again, Dr. Cunningham, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And that brings us to the end of another annual meeting podcast. Join us again on Wednesday. We'll be talking to award and plenary winners and safe travels for anyone coming to SAM. 